It's COP Fortnight, and in this edition of Good Pedersen's Climate Talks, we're decoding Glasgow. You may know that the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, number 26, is taking place in Scotland's second city. And we're going to go behind the headlines and explore what goes on at these massive annual events and consider how decisions are made. I'm Chris Davis, a senior advisor to Rud Pedersen, former member of the European Parliament's Environment Committee, a veteran of quite a few of these COPs. And with me are two of my fellow senior advisors, both with impressive experience gained with the European Commission. Peter Viz, the man who wrote the EU emissions trading system, well, the first draft anyway, and a former chef de cabinet to two commissioners. And Megan Richards, 27 years with the European Commission and a former director of energy policy in DGNA. Peter, I said, let's go behind the headlines. Well, the big, part, the big prime ministers, you know, the big, the, big, the big leaders, the big chiefs, they seem to have gone away now. So what's actually going on when it comes to negotiations in Glasgow? Well, there's obviously the two days of high-level participation that have just happened are incredibly important also for the subsequent negotiations that are now going on. Um, to some extent, the prime ministers or the heads of government, whoever, they, they made pledges or they made statements that were staking out their country's positions. And very often they were moving their country's positions forward a bit, which is very useful. For the next 10 days or so, there will be more technical discussions uh, that will be around the, in particular, issues that haven't yet been fully resolved after the Paris Agreement. And the biggest example of that is that the implementing provisions for one of the articles, Article 6, haven't yet been agreed. And that particular article governs what we call the cooperation mechanisms of the Paris Agreement, which is basically how countries might meet their pledges in collaboration with one another. This is not getting headline treatment, is it? It is very technical, in fact, um, because it's about things like carbon accounting. You know, if there's a reduction in a country and that that were to generate offset credits that were to be bought by another country, you know, which country does the carbon accounting to make sure that, you know, things are done properly? That is the, it, the nuts and bolts of it is technical and it's proven to be very difficult to resolve actually. COPs haven't managed. And so this COP is the third attempt to close that particular area of agreement. And there's scores of these negotiations. So people to people meeting in all sorts of rooms across the, the Glasgow the, Exhibition the, Centre, the Scottish right. Exhibition Centre. So many tracks. I mean, there's tracks about uh, capacity building, there's tracks about forests and deforestation, tracks of negotiation, in other words, uh, where they're trying to sort of move the needle forward a bit on a, each one of these issues. There are issues like climate finance, which are extremely important at this COP. And so there are no doubt working groups on, you know, what can be agreed and what different countries might be contributing towards uh, in terms of monetary donations or finance anyway. So yeah, lots of things going on at once. And they usually come together in a sort of statement or declaration that might be adopted at the end of the week that would try to capture the progress that would have been registered during the two weeks. 
if I can, Peter, just turn, turning to Megan, you know, Megan, I, I was only at COPS as a, as a parliamentarian, as, a, as an observer. What struck me was just trying try to follow what was going on in these places, always different meetings, the impenetrable jargon that, that some of the, Peter's just touched upon some of these complicated subjects which aren't being picked up by journalists. I, I, I found some of the titles of the meetings on the, on the agenda. I had no idea what was going on. You're absolutely right. But luckily, there are thousands of UN secretariat and government policymakers who spend years preparing these COPs and then, of course, do all the follow-up. They know exactly what they're talking about, A. And B, the COPs are also a wonderful uh, forum for non-governmental actors for our civil society, for industry, uh, for all sorts of industry interested parties to come and meet, exchange ideas. You mentioned the uh, pavilions that exist all around, I think they, sometimes it's called the marketplace, uh, where people can exchange ideas. Um, I think that's part of the excitement and the interest of a COP or any other big international organization like this. The point you're making here is um, that the COP has a focus's attention, perhaps, because Indeed. The, the, nego the negotiators are not simply meeting once a year. They're actually meeting at least at least every, once every three months informally away from, away from the cameras. And, and as Peter said, though, they, you know, they, can, they can be doing this every three months for, for, for years and still not reaching agreement. Perhaps the COP helps to, to focus attention and, and uh, forces them to come to some sort of conclusion. I think that's a very important role of the COP, focusing attention, bringing the attention to the rest of the world, making sure that climate change is on the agenda of everyone who, who follows the news. Uh, so that, that's a, a, a very, a really essential factor. Also, as I mentioned, it's not just uh, policymakers, it's not just governments. As an example, during the last four years, when the United States federal government didn't participate in the COPs, you had governors from states that were still in, you had all American cities, you had American industry, you had all the coalitions of the willing from the United States who were still actively participating, obviously not in the policy discussions, but in other actions, making sure that their actions and their activities in terms of addressing climate change were on the table, people knew what was going on, and they wanted to make their voices heard. And of course, we've had a year's delay because of the COVID pandemic, which is still <laughs> causing trouble. You've seen perhaps that the mayor of Los Angeles has now come down with positive COVID test, even though he's vaccinated, he seems to be fine. So this is a COP that's taking place in the midst of a, pand a pandemic, really. But I just want, I want one, one question to you. And of course, you, you know, you, both of you, you can both try and answer this one. You've both served for long periods of time in the European Commission. And of course, we see a lot of initiatives coming out of Brussels to try and uh, address the situation and high awareness amongst European citizens. If the European Union was not involved in a COP, how much progress would there be? I mean, who else would be taking the lead globally? Am I right <laughs> that the European Union is an absolutely key player? Well, you're issue. asking to uh, parti pris, I think. We both think, I'm sure Peter <laughs> agrees with me, that the EU's role is absolutely essential, even though the EU for the moment is only responsible for about 8% in that range of global greenhouse gas emissions. It has a huge role in terms of bringing along other parties, establishing, I'm going to call it regulatory pull by having quite extensive and solid climate legislation on the table 
in all the member states and of course bringing now its fit for 55 package forward so i think it it really has a very important role to play here peter i don't know if you think it's even more important well, megan you you've said what i would have said as well but i would say that we have the european union has been a consistently engaged party in this process since the very beginning i mean the very first cop took place in Berlin. And there have been now 26 COPs since then. Many of them have been in Europe. And of course, wherever it is in the world, Europe's always trying to urge people on to make its own commitments more ambitious in the hope that others will follow in the same direction. So I think there's there's been that consistent support from Europe. I wouldn't say that these COPs wouldn't happen if the Europeans weren't there. They probably would. But I think we are, you know, we, we are useful in accelerating things or urging people to do more, even when the going gets rough. And it has got rough over the years. You remember George Bush Jr. was the one who, the president who withdrew or never actually ratified the Kyoto Protocol and announced it was fatally flawed. And then of course, Trump withdrew from the Paris Agreements. These are big setbacks by big players. And, you know, Europe has tried to stay committed all that time and welcomed people back when they wanted to come back and shown a good example and met the targets that we've set ourselves and sort of the commitments we've had under these agreements. And Peter and Megan, I mean, Europe really works well. A, a former British minister, a former British minister once described the, the way in which European Union negotiates at these conferences. He said, well, it's Team Europe. We're all together. We're all battling together. And of course, there's other big players, China, of course, the United States. But there's said to be 197 different nations represented at COP. But they come in groups, don't they? I mean, Megan, it's, we're not dealing right. with lots and lots of individuals. We are, they do speak with collective voices. Yes, the, the groups negotiate amongst themselves. And as you know, both of you, how complicated and complex it is to get consensus within uh, the EU. But the EU speaks with one voice when it comes to these meetings. And I just want to underline another element relating to the EU participation this year. It's often said that this is a Glasgow summit, that this is a UK-based. It's both the UK and Italy who are co-hosting this COP. Uh, the UK, of course, was had the presidency of the G7 this year, and Italy had the presidency of the G20. And in that context, they have not just pushed forward the climate agenda in the COP, but also in the G7 and in the G20. And I think that's an important element that isn't often identified, at least not by the Anglophone media. I remember you, you just touched on the word consensus, uh, because I think it, almost any one nation can can throw a spanner in the works of trying to secure agreement. I, I remember uh, taking, just listening into a, to a discussion where a representative from Tuvalu, you know, the small island state in the, uh, in the Pacific, was, was repeatedly standing up and objecting to, well, I think he was insisting on greater ambition effect because his, his, his country stands to be wiped out as a result of climate change and rising sea levels. But of course, it's not just one country usually. They, they do work collectively. This, things like the coalitions of small island states, is it? It's AOSIS, the Alliance of Small Island States. And there's, of course, that they're part of a bigger group, uh, which would be the G77 and China, which is the developing country group, if you like. Uh, the European Union is a group that speaks with one voice, as Megan says, 
but we spend a lot of time in coordination in order to get there. A bit too much time actually at the COPs and not enough time reaching out to other parties, but that's just one of the traits of European ways of doing things. Yeah, I remember Peter, I remember someone saying in the end of a, a COP some, some years ago, saying we spent far too much time as a European Union negotiating at the COP between the member states of the European Union and not enough time engaging with the rest of the world. Yeah, it's a bit of a curse. <laughs> the negotiators from the European Union have to have very long days because they generally start with an EU coordination meeting, as all the other groups actually have coordination meetings at the beginning of the day too. Ours just seem to take ages. And then we would also typically convene during the day uh, and certainly at the end of the day to take stock. Um, so we're, that's in addition to the programme of the COP itself, of the business of the COP. So with all side events on top, it can be an extremely exhausting experience. Well, um, you just, you've just mentioned side events and, and, and Megan mentioned the pavilions because that's because you know, there's said to be 40,000 people passing their way through this, this COP during the course of the, the fortnight. And by no means are they all negotiators. It's sort of this, th th these events take place on two levels. There's these private meetings taking place behind closed doors. And then there's this trade exhibition, co great conference of, of, of fringe meetings and side events. Uh, it's a huge, I suppose, Megan, it's just a, it's, it's, a, it's a great networking opportunity and a great opportunity for companies to try and sell their, sell their products to help reduce climate change. Yes, that, that's one aspect. And just to go back to your previous point as well, Chris, on consensus, there are also a number of, I'm going to call them coalitions of the willing, which you've seen uh, now on methane, for example, on deforestation, on various other aspects, where not every single country has joined, the same with uh, reducing coal in South Africa. The interested countries and those who are actively involved have joined these coalitions and are ready to go forward. And I think this is also a good sign because even though not every single country has joined, others will come along later, perhaps when they see that things are progressing, they will uh, join in uh, and it drives the agenda forward and it drives the action forward. And this is another element relating to, let's call them the pavilions, the marketplace, uh, where new ideas are presented, new technologies, innovative ideas. And these are very useful also for, let's call it global south for participants who don't necessarily know all the details of some new industrial process that might be very useful to bring solar energy to small villages that doesn't require grid uh, connection, etc. Now, I'm exaggerating a bit to make a point, but you get the idea that you, you, you have all sorts of new and interesting ideas and developments that are put on show and, and can be identified for anyone who wants to pick them up and see them. Yeah, but, but they are crazy. I mean, I can, I can think of, as you know, parliament, a parliamentarian, you know, you're, you're not part of the negotiating team, although many parliamentarians would like to be, but truth is they're legislators, not, not negotiators. So uh, as a parliamentarian, you spend your time sort of wandering around from one coffee room to another and, and, tr and trying to read the briefings that have been produced by the NGOs, which tell you what actually has been going on inside these various meetings and then you have a demonstration by some i don't know greenpeace activists wearing polar bear suits or or, or, or something it's i mean this is this is the future of the planet we're, we're discussing here and, and on the one hand it seems to be terribly intense and serious and dull and boring um uh, and yet hugely important on the other hand it's all just media show well i was just going to say it's not just media events there's an element of the media of course but it's really important for 
countries like Tuvalu or uh, the Maldives to make sure others who are participating in these events and who are perhaps not entirely convinced or committed to the goals that have been identified by the 1.5 degree to see what the real impact is on those people. And I think this this also brings their cases to, to light. Right. Well, let's touch upon those big issues um, in, in a second. But I want to come back to Peter because, Peter, you like the detail. And you, I, I cut you off earlier when you were talking about just one example of the, of the, of the various meetings that are taking place to decide things of, of, of real importance. So just give us, give us an example. You, you mentioned that one way where you said, you know, we've been negotiating for years on this and we still haven't got an agreement. Go into that in more detail. What do we have to, what, what do we have to achieve and why are there objections to it? Well, I, I think many of our listeners may know the clean development mechanism, uh, which was something that was invented in the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, and it was, pro they were projects that were done in developing countries that were basically financed by the richer developed world. But in exchange for the finance, the developed world investors would acquire credits that could be used uh, for compliance purposes in the emissions trading system, for instance. That's what we have done in Europe. We've been using these CDM offset credits to a certain extent. Now, basically, there were there are problems. The CDM didn't work quite as well as had been hoped in terms of environmental quality. So they're trying again to develop uh, an offsetting mechanism that would enable there to be collaboration between countries that would entail the giving of finance from the rich world to the developing world. And that mechanism would going to be better. The idea is it should be better than the clean development mechanism that we've had before. So the spirit is the same, if you like. We're trying to learn from experience, do something better this time. But it's proving very difficult to agree how this new mechanism might look. And one of the issues is what to do with the existing CDM credits, the, those of the clean development mechanism that have been generated since 2008, when you know the Kyoto Protocol started, there's a lot of these credits out in the market, and there's a school, including the Europeans, who want there to be a cutoff date and say, well, we would only allow the projects that have been established since the Paris Agreement was agreed in 2015, for instance, onwards. Only those recent projects would be eligible for producing these credits, and not the old stuff that was done in in the 200 to 2010 sort of period. Um, now that's very divisive. That particular issue is very divisive. How, what sort of credits you should have? Many developing countries want all of the credits to be able to be used in the future. Okay, um, but, but I mean, that's interesting because you're, you're mentioning developing countries there, but, but uh, and you know, one, one would feel sympathy for them because they've got less money to deal with the issue. And they're likely in many cases to, to, to suffer more as a result of uh, of yeah. global warming. And yeah. yet Greta Thunberg, I think, has just been in denouncing the whole process as greenwash. Well, I don't, I haven't heard what Greta has said specifically. Um, that I mean, she talks about the blah, blah, blah. That blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Conferences, yes. Um, I think she hasn't exactly, as far as I'm aware, unless it's very recently, she hasn't spoken out against these offsetting crediting mechanisms, because done well, they can be very valuable, but they've got to be done well. So really it's defining what is a good project. And a good project has to be something that goes beyond the business as usual. You know, the default of what would be done in, you know, if you're going to 
have a diesel generator in Africa, if that is the norm, and you actually put a renewable energy solar powered generator together, then that, that's, that's materially better than the diesel. And, you know, there may be a good case there for that generating credits. But so, 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 so how do you have an adjudicating authority who decides well, what's acceptable and what's not? That's a good question. The Kyoto Protocol established a CDM executive board, and, and that was the governance body that oversaw the amounts of credits that were generated by projects. And there are criteria that the projects should fulfill. And one of them is, uh, you know, environmental integrity, additionality. It has to be over and above what would be done under normal circumstances. And it's just those criteria are difficult to interpret. Uh, and there are differences of interpretation. And I hope they do resolve something on this, on the cooperation mechanisms at this COP, because it is an integral part of the Paris Agreement. But I would say that the Europeans, in the meantime, have made their commitments and their recently submitted uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement for 55% reductions in 2030 and net zero in 2050. Those are commitments that the EU is intending to make without using these cooperation mechanisms. Okay. We're going to do that internal to the EU. Other parties perhaps won't take that decision, but you know whether or not it's something we're going to use, Europe is at the negotiations now trying to get good quality mechanism together uh, that ensures environmental additionality. So, and there are lots. That's fascinating because there's lots of other parallel negotiations of similar complexity taking taking place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or even more complex. Can I just add one point too to what um, Peter has mentioned, and that is that. I mean, usually, and in many cases, there's a lot of discussion at the COP and in the newspapers and in the media about the importance of, I'm going to call it mitigation, keeping the temperature to 1.5 or 2 degrees. Let's, let's not go into the details of that. But a huge problem is going to be also relating to adaptation. If we can't meet these goals and if we can't do it as quickly as, as, as we think is necessary, there's many, many countries, you've mentioned Tuvalu, there are many others who, and, and all countries around the world, have to deal with adapting to the damaging effects of climate change. Russia, Canada have permafrost melting, glaciers are melting in uh, uh, the Alps and, and everywhere else. So this is going to be a responsibility of every single country. And also countries in the global south are going to need additional help to do that. So this is one aspect that it seems to me discussed so much in the COP context, and I mean by, by the media, it's, it's something that's discussed very much in the, in the COP negotiations. Um, and then the other aspect is finance. Who and how is the financing of both mitigation and adaptation going to take place? I mean, we've seen Mark Carney now with his like, finance or whatever it's called, <laughs> the financial markets. Uh, coming forward. So these are all aspects that I think are really essential to the discussion. It must also, Megan, come down yeah. to trust. I mean, developing nations must be looking at the promises that have been made by the richer countries in the past, you know, the 100 billion pledge and such like, and saying, well, you know, can we can we trust anything that's actually said? It doesn't happen. Can I let me turn on because we're coming to the end. So let me just turn on to uh, a bit of consideration of some of the you know the big announcements we've heard about plans to to curb deforestation, about plans to 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 curb the emissions of methane, um, some progress perhaps on on curbing coal, but not uh, not not huge progress. I think um, 
I'll give my my own viewpoint. I'm I'm pretty pessimistic at the moment from these. I mean, I look at the deforestation one, 2030, an awful lot of the Amazon rainforest can disappear between now and 2030, and even then it might not be enforceable. And if I was still you know, going to an electorate and, and 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 seeking votes and saying we must do this and do that, I wouldn't be sure that I would have a convincing answer when I said, you know, you've got to pay you, my voters are going to pay for these things to make these changes. When they would come back to me and say, why should we do this when there's coal fired power stations being built all over the place? Why should we do this when the very worst emitters are carrying on making the situation even more difficult? Anyway, but there we are. That's my pessimistic view. Are you clinging to the optimism of the last few days? I'm still optimistic. And I think that um, one thing we really have to do is show that everyone has a role in addressing climate change. Because also we in the West have had the great advantage of being able to emit for many, many years, ever since the Industrial Revolution, without having to limit our consumption, without having to pay attention to how, where, and when we consumed or used energy. And now we have a real obligation to make a change, to make things cleaner, more sustainable, better, and everyone can, can participate in this. So I think this is, is a responsibility also of politicians to explain to their electorate how, where, what they can do, and how these changes will be beneficial, not just for their own populations, but also for the world. Well, I always uh, I listen to that, and I hear you talking about the obligation, and I completely agree with you, of course, the moral responsibility of those countries that have benefited from burning fossil fuels. But I also remember that famous remark of a politician who was asked, do you know how to deal with climate change? And she replied, yes, we know how to deal with climate change. We just don't know how to get elected again if we do what has to be done. <laughs> that was Jean-Claude Juncker who used to say uh, that. Was it? Okay. <laughs> we know exactly what needs to be done, but we don't know how to get elected if we do it. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the <laughs> dilemma. Peter, um, optimistic or pessimistic? Um, well, I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic right now. Um, let's, let's talk again later in the process. Um, but this is the first COP at which, as, as intended by the Paris Agreement, the commitments that were made in Paris would be updated every five years. And this is the first COP that is taking place after that five-year anniversary. And many countries are indeed stepping up their ambition and making more ambitious nationally determined contributions, which I think is very encouraging. Indeed, if all of those promises were kept, the back of the envelope calculations are that we might indeed be able to keep the average global temperature from rising by more than two degrees. But the big if is, will those pledges be kept? It's implementation that's the difficult bit. It's adopting policies and introducing actions that actually change things on the ground. That's the politically difficult bit. And so I think what this COP has to do is consolidate the progress of this new round of nationally determined contributions, more ambition for everybody, we hope. And then, of course, the difficult process begins uh, of doing it. But let's see. I'm optimistic that the movements are going in the right direction. We're still stuck, I think, in the situation where, where we, look, we look to 2050, which is, what, 29 years off. And an awful lot of politicians can say, I can make big promises because I won't have to implement them. I'll be gone by the time the decisions have to be really taken. 
Yes, and I think one of the criticisms of the long-term goals that are being stated by a lot of countries is that there need to be much nearer-term targets as well, um, which require nearer-term action, precisely to try and get round that. But you're right, Chris. I mean, the the timescales of politicians are electoral timescales. Climate change is happening, and it's not waiting for any elections or anyone particular to be elected. It's just happening incrementally. But it's this is a I think so far uh, it's made progress, uh, and we've got to hope that during the remaining ten days, none of that unravels. Okay, Peter, Peter Viz, and Megan Richards. Let's come back to that in a in a week's time. Uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, well, I'm ho hoping that we're going to get some more positive announcements over the next uh, week or so. So this is Chris Davis, and thank you very much for listening to this edition of Rudd Pedersen Climate Talks.